Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 as we come back to our, uh, uh, this passage, uh, this uh, section of Matthew's gospel that brings us right to the doorstep of Jerusalem. This is uh, the, the final journey of Christ on his way to what would eventually be his crucifixion. And Matthew 20 takes us to this scene, as I said, uh, not so much maybe on the doorstep, but the last mile marker as he's on his way. And he's passing through the town of Jericho. Jericho sits at the bottom of the Rift Valley there down near the Dead Sea, uh, 3,000 feet really down into the valley as they begin the ascent going up to Jerusalem. And this would have been uh, a significant sort of uh, uh, venue, a significant place for all pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem. Jericho is uh, somewhat familiar to you if you're a bit of a Bible student. You remember this was the place where Israel first entered the promised land and they surrounded that city. They circled it, you may remember, seven times and eventually the Lord miraculously caused the, the walls of the city to crumble and Israel overthrew them and had their first victory in overtaking the, the promised land. And it's the ruins of that city that sat there for hundreds of years. As a matter of fact, they're still there. They're still visible to this day. The ruins of that old city were never really rebuilt. But eventually, because it is such a fertile place and and such a strategic place, uh, eventually when Israel did reoccupy the land of Israel, uh, the land of Palestine years later after having been in exile, they began to construct a new city of Jericho, near the same spot, just a mile or so separated, because of all the productivity of the land, because of all the strategic uh, 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 elements that were there. They built a new city of Jericho on the same road, on the same pathway that was, uh, that was headed to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple reasons that they did this. As I said, uh, part of it was just strategic, just simply because this was the main thoroughfare If you were traveling to Israel, certainly from the east, this was the main way that you kind of go up into the cliffs going towards Jerusalem. But not only that, uh, if you were coming from the north, generally Jews would have avoided the western side of of the Jordan River because of uh, the association with the Samaritans. They would have come down the east side and so therefore would have made their turn going up to Jerusalem through this same territory. And so it made it an incredibly busy uh, and uh, uh, active area with a lot of commerce. This is why you see people like Zacchaeus, a tax collector, uh, setting up his shop in, in Jericho because he would have made tons of tax revenue from all the goods that would have passed through that, that territory. But it wasn't just that element. It was also very fertile. Uh, Down in the valley there, there were a number of springs back in those days that made it an incredibly fertile territory. As a matter of fact, the the name Jericho literally means perfumed. And it was named that because it was in that area you could grow almost anything. All kinds of roses and flowering plants just filled the air with with, uh, wonderful fragrances and flora all year long, not to mention uh, vegetables and, and edible crops. Of course, we 
some of us may know Jericho as the city of palms, as it's sometimes called today because of all the palm trees that grow around it. And even in Jesus's day, it was known for these sweet-scented balsam plants that, that were very similar that grew there. And it was from these plants that people would make a salve that was renowned and, uh, and believed to be able to cure diseases, particularly to be able to cure blindness. And so, not surprisingly, Jericho was the spot that attracted a lot of blind people. And there were a lot of blind people in those days. There were a lot of blind people because they didn't have the technologies that we have today. When someone is born, as uh, you may know, if you've been a part of a, of a birth here, you are familiar. When they're born, they uh, come through the birth canal. The doctors uh, sweep the baby up and put salve and, and uh, ointments on their eyes to help kill any kind of diseases that might have been uh, collected there through the birth canal so that those diseases don't penetrate into the eyes and cause blindness. But apart from the modern technologies that we have over the last hundred years, that hasn't been the case. And so in the ancient world, many, many people would have been afflicted with blindness from birth, just from the, the natural processes, if not from all the other diseases and all all the other sort of uh, dangers that were out there in society. And so there were an abundance, uh, many more blind people in the ancient world than you would have had today. And many of them would have been attracted to the territory of Jericho. They were there not only because of the salve, but they were there because of the crowds. Because this was the place where on any given day there would be hundreds, sometimes thousands of people walking the roads on the way to Jerusalem. And the blind people lined the streets begging for help. That was all they had. They didn't have many other options. There weren't great social structures. There wasn't a lot of abundance even within families to care for them. And so a lot of them would have been put out on the street just simply to beg. Now, that's really what we find when we come to Matthew chapter 20. That scene there in the city of Jerusalem with beggars, blind beggars on the street as Jesus makes his way to the holy city. And we can pick up the story there in verse 29 of Matthew 20 and and see how this unfolds. Matthew tells us, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, this is a very poignant uh, story in many ways because these two men would have been uh, those that have been overlooked in many ways. They were not only unable to see, but in some ways they were unseen, at least in the sort of cultural and societal sense as we sometimes talk about people who are invisible even today. We, we don't mean that they're physically uh, you know, not noticed, but what we mean is that their plight 
Their circumstances aren't really understood. They're not really sympathized with. They're not really, uh, they're not really uh, connected. People don't really connect with the sorrows of their life. Their voices are dismissed. Their struggles are never heard. They can feel themselves like they live a bit in the shadows. That would have been these blind men. Uh, there are people today who experience this, if not for blindness, other health issues. Uh, uh, they may know, or uh, people close to them, I should say, may know what's going on with them, but many people don't know the real sort of turmoil of their life. There are yet others who maybe aren't struggling with physical ailments, but they struggle with other things. They're in abusive relationships, or they've been victimized in some way, or they labor under deep scars that run to the very heart of their being, or some of them are just neglected. They're just forgotten. They've been abandoned. They've been left. Maybe they've been through difficult divorce, or possibly they even have just sort of aged in life and friends have left them. Some have died and their family rarely checks in. They're on the edge of society as well. They're every day gripped by the same kind of despair and depleted hope that has captured so many and they, they're asking themselves the same kind of questions that people have asked through the generations, whether or not uh, not only have people forgotten them but whether or not God has forgotten them. Like the psalmist in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, he says. Or Psalm 42, I said to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Or Jeremiah, whenever he went through the tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem and he sat among his ruins, and he says in Lamentations 5, why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Those kinds of emotions are real, and they're felt by many people. They feel forgotten, they feel neglected, they feel unseen. That's why the Scripture constantly reminds us that no matter what your emotions are telling you, no matter what even your circumstances might be, the Lord doesn't forget. He is attentive to the cries of those who are in distress. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, and He hears their cry and saves them. This is a story here about two men who I'm sure felt at times like they were forgotten They had lived their life for now many, many years in their kind of condition and had been pushed to the point of begging and had been rejected over and over again, had faced starvation and all the things that came along with their life. And and I'm sure like many people, they wondered whether, not only whether those who were passing by even noticed or cared, they probably wondered whether the Lord noticed or cared. But here... In this story, they're reminded that not only are they noticed and cared for, but they are a priority to the Lord. That's really what this story is about. It's about God's compassion for these men. 
But as much as anything, it's equally about the lack of compassion from the crowds. The contrast could not be more stark. The contrast between the reaction of the crowds who surrounded these men and the reaction of the Savior on his, on his final steps, really, to his own agony and to his own crucifixion. The final steps of his own rejection from his disciples. And yet, in spite of all that that might have been weighing on his mind that day, he wasn't too busy to notice the plight of these two men. Now, we're told that all these things happened, Matthew says, as Jesus was going out of Jericho. It's also recorded by Mark and Luke, but they say it happened while he was entering Jericho. And, and probably the way that we understand that is that they're, they're talking about both Jerichos. They're talking about the ancient city of Jericho, the ruined city, which would have been at one point on the road. And they're talking about the new city, which, as I said, was just a mile or two separated. And so all this probably takes place on that stretch of road that connects the old city to the new city on the way to, to Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that there were these two blind men who, who were there. Mark actually tells us the name of one of the blind men. His name was Bartimaeus. It's unusual for us to have a name of someone that Jesus healed. Most of the people who are recipients of his grace in his lifetime, we don't get the specifics of their names, but here we do. His name was Bartimaeus, and that's all we're told, and probably that's all that needed to be said in the ancient world because he would have been known by the readers of the gospel. He would have been known because he had become a disciple. And by the time Mark writes his gospel some 35 years after these events, Bartimaeus would have been in the church. He would have been serving in the church. He probably had become a prominent leader in the church. And so he was just known by his name at that point. Blind Bartimaeus, who had been touched by the Lord and had regained his sight. And then for some three decades then, had continued on in faithful following of Christ, using that sight that the Lord had given him to study the Scripture, to, to, to teach the Scripture, to provide leadership within the church, and to become apparently well-known by first name throughout the church. So, so that's sort of what we're looking at, but, but the purpose of it all is to highlight the compassion of our Savior. And what we have here are really some scenes of this day in the life of Christ. Three scenes that I think are sort of presented to us that show the compassion of, of Christ for those who call on Him out of their weakness. But don't lose sight of the timing of it either. This is, this, this is the last event that we hear about before the Passion Week, the last event before the triumphal entry, the last event that we really know about that we might say punctuates the ministry of Christ and in so many ways represents his ministry. And that punctuation mark is all about his compassion. You see it as, as, as the scene unfolds there in verse 29 and 30 when we first get a glimpse of these blind beggars sitting by the roadside, craving 
compassion from the Savior. That's how the story opens. These, these two men on this stretch of road between the old city and the new city, probably, as I said, not the only beggars on the road that day. There would have been a number who were, who were there because of the crowds and particularly because this was heading into the Passover week. The crowds would have been more massive than ever. There would have been streams of pilgrims heading up the road to Jerusalem. But as they're streaming by this particular day, these blind men notice that there's something unique about these pilgrims, this crowd. There's, there's you might say, sort of a, a swell of excitement uh, that is palpable in the air, and these blind men are able to pick up on it to know that something is different that's happening around them at this particular moment. And Mark tells us that they actually ask, excuse me, Luke tells us they actually ask someone in the crowd, what's going on? And, and someone told them, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. They would have known that title. That's the way Jesus was referred to maybe most frequently in the Gospels, and particularly when you were down around Jerusalem, when you're down in southern Israel, they would have referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Jesus from that sort of backwoods little town up in northern Israel. It was a pejorative way of referring to him, but that would have been how he was typically referred to down near, uh, near Judea. And they would have heard, like everyone else had heard about his ministry. They would have heard about the miracles they would have heard about all the, 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 the reputation of how he had helped so many people. And they would have sensed, because there would have been a buzz in the air as he made his way with all of the people who were flocking with him. They were flocking with him, no doubt, because they were anticipating big things when he got to the big city, when he got finally to Jerusalem. They were anticipating what might happen, how he might reveal himself. He had been there before, and, and when he had been there, there had always sort of been sort of crazy events. Uh, he had, when he first went to uh, Jerusalem, he overturned the money changers' tables and set sort of the whole temple scene in disruption. At other times, he stood up in the midst of crowds and cried out and made promises that stirred messianic expectations. And so there was a, an element of anticipation as he was going on his way, but even more so probably now than ever, because just two months earlier, or maybe a month and a half earlier, Jesus had been in Jerusalem once again. But in that visit, he visited a little town of Bethany where he went to the home of Mary and Martha because their brother, Lazarus, had died. And Jesus visited with them and went to the grave of Lazarus and raised him from the dead. And it was a remarkable thing and so remarkable that no one could deny the power. In fact, Jesus intentionally waited a few days before he went in order to accentuate the power, so that by the time he got to Bethany, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for a couple of days, the body had already started to decay, and the stench was already in the air. And so when he calls Lazarus forth from the grave, he comes out all wrapped in his sort of uh, burial wrapping with all the, uh, the sort of ointments and everything that was there. He comes out fully alive, and the people are astounded. It's such a remarkable miracle 
that it's at this point, John says, that the leaders of Jerusalem determine that they must do something to kill him. That's the only option they have. If they don't kill him, he's going to keep doing miracles, they say, just like this, and everyone is going to follow him. And the Romans are going to take notice, and they're going to come, and they're going to wipe us out, take away our seat of power. And so this is where they really kind of make their plot to kill him a few months earlier the next time they have the opportunity. But, but even while they're doing that, everyone else is filled with excitement because the, the news and the rumor of this miracle has spread everywhere. And so he's gone, he, he's left the town, now he's on his way back, and he's coming back at the zenith of his popularity in that sense, the zenith of, of anticipation, Word would have spread everywhere. It would have come down into the valley. It would have been known down in Jericho. People would have heard what he did and there would have been an incredible amount of of euphoria and enthusiasm for this mighty healer on his way back into Jerusalem. There would have been a buzz in the air. And so, as this whole crowd is beginning to, to pass by, these two blind men, Bartimaeus and his friend, hear all the excitement, realize who it is that's passing by, and they cry out. The word is ekrazen. It's literally a word for screaming. Most of the time, it's in reference to unintelligible shrieks and, and, uh, and, and screams, like just, just agony of, of pain that might be, uh, Uh, calling out but here they actually are articulating something but the idea is that they're doing it if you will at the top of their lungs they're crying out because because of the crowd they had to if they're going to be noticed they were crying out lord have mercy on us son of david you'll notice here they're not using the typical title jesus of nazareth that's what they were told. That's who they said they were told who was there. But that's not, how they, that's not how they call out to him. They call him the son of David, which was not a widely used term, but was a widely understood term. And it's not incidental that they use it. This is nothing less than a declaration by these blind men of who they believe this man to be. He is the son of David, which was a title uh, that, was, that was formal in one sense, uh, in the sense of uh, if it would be applied to the Messiah. It actually comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament that was associated with David. It came in a, what we know as the covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of the pillars of, of the Bible, really, the Old Testament the covenant that God made with David, just like he made a covenant with Noah, just like he made a covenant with Abraham, he made a covenant with David, and uh, he'll even make a covenant with the priest and a, covenant, a new covenant down the road. He makes all of these sort of covenants, but, but this covenant with David had a central promise to it. And the promise was that one of David's descendants, one of his offspring, would be established on the throne of Israel forever. This is the way it says it in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
And, I, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that word offspring in Hebrew is literally the word son. Uh, the, the word offspring uh, uh, in Hebrew is literally the word son, so they don't have a separate word for offspring. And so this was the son of David. I will, I will raise up a son after you. It didn't necessarily mean a, a first-generation descendant like our English word son means. It just means someone who was a physical descendant of yours. And so, so from his line of descendants, there will come a child who was born. And the prophecy says that God would raise him up and reestablish the, the kingdom of David which came with it certain implications of peace, in fact, explicit promises of peace. This son of David would, uh, would not only reestablish the kingdom, he would reunite Israel. He would bring back all of the scattered Jews who were all over the nation, excuse me, all over the world and all these nations. He would reestablish the kingdom in terms of its prominence and in terms of its peace with all of its neighbors. He would rebuild uh, the ruins of Jerusalem and reestablish the glories of Israel. And so Israel clung to this promise. They clung to this prophecy that the son of David, the offspring of David, would come. Sometimes he was just referred to as the promised one. Sometimes he was just referred to as the anointed one. In Hebrew, Messiah, the anointed one, which we, we transliterate into English, the Messiah. Or in Greek, the Christos, which we transliterate into Christ. All those are talking about the same thing. This is what Israel was hoping for. This is what they were looking for. But there weren't many in these days who were willing to apply that title to Jesus just yet. For various reasons, for political reasons, because they knew that if they were to make that kind of a claim, it would bring the ire of the Romans who were fearful of some sort of uprising and rebellion for religious reasons, because they know that if they started to make that proclamation about somebody and it wasn't endorsed by the religious establishment, they could be put out of the synagogue. And for personal reasons, because they know if they make that kind of a claim of anyone, it has implications for them personally in terms of their allegiance and their association. And so they might be willing to address him as Jesus of Nazareth, but not many were willing to call him son of David. But one thing, if there was anything that would persuade them to do that, if there was anything that made them open to the possibility that this might be the son of David, it was one thing. It was his healing ministry. Because they knew that with all the prophecies of this coming messianic kingdom, they knew that there was a promise of physical restoration for those who were afflicted with various diseases. That's why back in Matthew 12, when Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus casts the demon out of him and so heals him so that he restores his sight and restores his voice. Matthew told us at that point that all the people were amazed and began to speculate saying, can this be the son of David? It was the healing that made them finally begin to say, well, possibly this might be the son of David. 
In fact, the miracles that Jesus performed were the things that, that were most often associated with this kind of speculation. And even in Jesus' sort of inaugural announcement of his ministry back in Nazareth, whenever he went into the synagogue, before anyone really knew him publicly, he went into the synagogue, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61, and he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So this is the way he announced his ministry in the Messianic age, that he was going to bring recovery of sight to the blind. You may remember even later on when John the Baptist was eventually arrested and thrown into prison and he begins to sit there in prison and have doubts about about who Christ is and whether or not he had correctly identified him, he sends some of his disciples uh, to, uh, on a sort of reconnaissance mission to figure out whether he's made some sort of mistake. And they go ask, Jesus, are you the expected one or should we wait for another? And Jesus responds by quoting from the Old Testament scripture about how the blind will receive their sight and the deaf will recover their hearing. And the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And then he, we're told, healed people on the spot at that very moment as a kind of accreditation or validation of the fact that he is the Messiah. Why? Because these kinds of healing miracles were unique. They were unique to the Messiah, in other words, they didn't happen all the time. This was, it's not like people were getting healed all the time or that God gave healing powers to everybody and, and, and it just happened, uh, you know, day in and day out or week in or week out or year in and year out. This is not common. And so his healing ministries would have been one of the most validating elements of his life. And we, we understand that when we hear these promises, Isaiah 35 talks about the everlasting kingdom of the Messiah. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. That that, that doesn't happen all the time. And so these miracles uh, sort of attest to the fact that that that, that kingdom had arrived. Or Isaiah 29, and in that day the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and dark, darkness the eyes of the blind will see and the meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of Israel. So the Jews had heard these promises all their life. This was their expectation that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a new era, not only where the marginalized and weak would be brought to joy, but particularly an era of physical blessing for the people of Israel, even to the point where some of the physical ailments that were associated with the fall of, of humanity in, uh, under the curse, the physical diseases that were a result of the fall into sin, those would start to be reversed with the advent of the Messiah. Jews understood that. And so when they saw healings, it registered in their minds. And you can better, you better believe it registered in the minds of these blind guys as well. They understood. They understood. And so when Jesus comes by, they take the opportunity to express their faith in his claim 
to be the Messiah. They weren't just asking for healing. They were saying, we believe you. We believe you. You are the son of David. We are, you are who you say you are. And that declaration of faith rings out above the crowd. Which brings us to sort of the second unfortunate scene of this whole thing, which uh, continues to sort of emphasize the compassion of our Savior, but, but really by way of contrast, because when these men begin to sound out their faith, their humble faith, they're not met with encouragement, they're met with callousness. The callous crowds who are absolutely uninterested in their need. They totally neglect the need of these two men. And you see it there in Matthew 20, verse 31. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. The other gospels record this as well. Mark 10, they were sternly telling them to be quiet. Or Luke 18, those who led the way were sternly telling them to be quiet. So all the gospel writers feel that it is important to note this fact that the crowd responded in this way, probably because by this time now, decades later, Bartimaeus had been in the church and he had told his testimony a number of times and and he probably emphasized this himself because this stood out to him. I remember that day I was sitting there in the filth along the, the side of the road and I heard this crowd and the commotion and they told me it was Jesus and I started to call out to him and I remember everybody in the crowd telling me to shut up. I remember they were all sternly rebuking me. In fact, the word is very uh, severe. It's kind of like a word for scolding him. They were scolding these blind men, warning them not to make a scene, not to make a disturbance, that they were out of line, they were out of place. This would have been vivid in the mind of, of Bartimaeus. But these people who were around him They really, while they had all the privileges of sight, while they had all the benefits that these blind men had, they really reveal ultimately their blindness in their attempt to rebuke these two men. Because they really reveal they don't understand what Jesus is about. They don't understand his message. They don't understand his compassion. They don't understand why he came. They don't understand their own need for mercy, and so they're not prepared to give mercy to other people. And so for them, these blind men are just an annoyance, a nuisance, and they hold them in contempt. In fact, it would have been particularly so because in those days when you were blind or when you had some other handicap, there was always an assumption that it was your own fault, that something you did wrong In fact, it's explicit in one point whenever Jesus encounters a blind man in John chapter 9, the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's the only two explanations possible. I mean, if somebody is suffering like that, if somebody has a problem in their life, it's obvious that they did something wrong or somebody did something wrong to put them in that spot. This is the way people would have viewed these blind men. They, as I said, viewed all handicapped people this way. And so these were outcasts. 
They were sinners. They were, in the minds of many people, deserving of the kind of filth that they lived in. They were suffering what they suffered because they had done something wrong. And they either weren't dealing with it or weren't willing to admit it or whatever it might be. And I can just imagine, you hear that your whole life, I could just imagine that these men probably started to believe it themselves. They, they may not have known what they did wrong. Or maybe they, maybe they had done something wrong. We all sin. We all do something wrong. And, and maybe they took some minor thing and exaggerated it in their mind and it became way bigger in terms of how they felt about it, their guilt, than it really, really was. And they just associated that with, oh, that must be, that must be why God's punishing me. That must be why God's treating me the way he's treating me. I mean, this thing I did or whatever. That's, that's the way everyone viewed these men. I saw certainly the assumption of the crowd. And they concluded that Jesus couldn't be disturbed by these men. He had more important things to do. He had more important matters to attend to than to deal with somebody like that. John Calvin He comments here. He says, quote, It's surprising that the disciples of Christ who followed him through some sense of duty and of respect should wish to drive wretched men from the favor of Christ. And so far as lies in them to prevent the exercise of his power. If Satan endeavored to throw obstacles in the way of these blind men by means of pious and simple people who were induced by some sentiments of religion to follow Christ, How much more will he succeed in accomplishing it by the means of hypocrites and traitors? End quote. There's all kinds of ways that Satan keeps these people from Christ. Those who have been marginalized and those who have been hurt. Those who are pushed to the edge of society because of some mar on their body or on their character or on their heart. And everyone assumes, yeah, well, that's kind of, they're just, they just, they're this there because of something they did. They're just a sinner. They kind of deserve to be in the pit. If pious people do that, you can just imagine what Satan does with the worldly who reinforce that message and tell people all the time, you have no place in religion. The church doesn't want you. Christ doesn't want you. The church, Jesus doesn't want you. That's where these people were, and this might have been, as I said, where even these blind men were tempted to be. And yet, in spite of all that, they were convinced that Jesus was able to heal them. And so in the face of all the discouragement And in the face of all the rebukes, their faith wasn't dampened. And we are told in verse 31 that they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. At this point, Jesus responds. He stops. And it brings us really to the third scene, if you will, of this whole episode. And the highlight of it all where we see the mercy of the Messiah to deliver these destitute beggars. He stops and calls them to himself. Mark actually tells us that he doesn't call them directly. He tells the crowd to call them over. 
so almost to, to accentuate to the crowd that uh, they, uh, they need to go over there and summon these guys. And it's, it's really a sad story of hypocrisy, these people that were, that were rebuking and censoring these two uh, uh, beggars suddenly turn around to them with some sort of voice of encouragement. In fact, Mark says they spoke to him with encouragement. He wants to speak to you. Come over. Now they're, now they're in the spotlight and everyone is sort of on the bandwagon and they're sort of celebrating these two guys. They don't understand anything, though. They don't understand the Savior. They don't understand the plight of these men. They don't understand His mercy. But when they come over, these blind men, to Jesus, He asks them, what do you want me to do? And they respond in verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. We're not sure why He exactly asked the question. It should be somewhat obvious. But perhaps just simply to highlight to the people not only what exactly is taking place, but how simple the request is that he responds to. And Matthew tells us, Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Matthew's the only one that emphasizes the pity here. The other Gospels don't highlight it, but, but Matthew uses this word, splogna, a common word in in Greek that talks about compassion, really it's a word for intestines because it associates the kind of emotions that you feel deep, deep in your core, deep in your, in your, in your gut, we would say, when your stomach is tied in knots as you contemplate the plight of certain people who suffer. That's what Jesus was feeling when he saw these two filthy men. He looked at them and he couldn't help but to be moved as he thought about their life and what they had suffered and what they had experienced all their years and how they had been viewed by others and how they had been cast aside. He couldn't help but to feel it deeply in his gut. And so moved by compassion, he touches their eyes and Matthew says, immediately they recover their sight. Immediately, This is the way all Jesus' miracles operate. It is, it is instantaneous. It is miraculous and powerful, but it's also instantaneous. And it is, we might say, messianic because nothing like this had ever been seen in Israel. These weren't healings. Healings like this don't take place every day. Nor, might I add, has it ever been seen like this. Uh, For this brief period of time while Jesus was on the face of the earth and and for a brief period of time after him with his apostles and prophets, there was this display of power with the inauguration of the Messianic age. But apart from, from that, these were unique. This is why the restoring of sight and these kinds of miracles were such definitive signs of the Messiah. I mean, there's not much faking going on here. These were well-known blind men. They weren't mimicking. They weren't play-acting. They had been blind from birth, and everyone was well aware of it. As I've said so many times then, these kinds of miracles that Christ did are so distinct and so sort of set apart in both their quality and power from the pseudo-healers of today who don't touch these kinds of cases. These are 
These are remarkable healings that were so remarkable they could not be denied even by Jesus' starkest detractors. All they could do was, on one hand, either claim he was doing it by dark magic, by the power of Satan, or on the other hand, they just plot to kill him. But they couldn't claim that his powers weren't real. These were not faked afflictions. They weren't people that were getting temporary improvement only to sort of fall back into their, their aches and their pains and their plight. Jesus regularly did miracles like this, completely sort of restoring people's sight or taking utterly, visibly deformed bodies and completely restoring them to full strength and health. Distinct miracles, undeniable miracles that indicated his Messiahship. Once again, Jesus does it as a sort of punctuation mark, as I said, on his ministry as he makes his way to Jerusalem before he finally goes to his death. One last testimony, one last opportunity for Israel to see. And yet they still resist to fully give him his due as the son of David. But not these men, not these two men anyway. They were ready. They clearly believed in him. He healed them and they jumped up and they started following him, Matthew says. They joined the crowd of his disciples making their way to Jerusalem. What's really remarkable about these men is not what happened to them afterward. It's really what happened to them before. They had never seen, they had literally never seen Jesus. They'd never seen his miracles, even though they lived on the earth at the same time as him. They'd never seen any person who was, uh, had his sight restored or, or had been you know, brought back from paralyzation. They had never seen Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. They had never actually seen. The only way they knew about any of this stuff is the same way that you know about it and the same way I know about it. They just heard someone tell the story. They just heard someone report to them that there was this man who worked miracles and he was able to restore sight to the blind and this was the, this was the person who was doing all the messianic stuff. That's all they had, the same stuff that you have, the same stuff that I have. But what's different about them from all the other crowds is they believed. They were willing without having any visual evidence or anything else. They were willing to say, he is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the one that God promised. And they were willing to stake their life on it. They were willing to face the ridicule of the crowds in clinging to that truth. In a sense, they're a picture of faith because the Scripture tells us in Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, of things not seen. These men had that conviction, even though they had never seen. They were willing to confess Jesus as the Messiah. They had reached a place of certainty in their heart. It's an irony in that day, because these blind men actually saw the world more clearly than all the crowds that were surrounding Jesus. 
Just like those who come to faith today, you come to faith, you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, you see the world more clearly than all the crowds that surround you because you're seeing with spiritual eyes. You're seeing with spiritual eyes. And in some ways, you must rely on Him as much as these men relied on Jesus to give you those eyes. But you also have the assurance that those who call on the Lord in truth, He hears you. And He'll open your eyes. He will heal your blindness. He will heal whatever your ailments are, whatever it is that has caused you to feel abandoned by God and pressed to the edges of society, whatever the scars. He is as able to feel compassion and to touch and to heal you today as he was those two men. All it takes is the same cry, the same lifting up your voice, the same words, have mercy on me, son of David, and God will listen. Father, we are thankful for this picture of our Savior so poignant as he heads to his own death. So much that must have been on his mind that day, but what was on his mind as much as anything were those who were needy. We could not imagine a more wonderful Savior. We couldn't dream up a more compassionate Lord. And we're so excited and anticipating His kingdom as much as anyone was, but I pray for those who are here today who are not ready for it. They might be among the crowds. They might show the enthusiasm and the euphoria for Christ, but they haven't fully seen. I pray for them today that they would cry out like these beggars cried out, that they would lift up their voice to you and once for all say, you are the Christ. Heal me. Be merciful to me. We know you'll hear that cry, O Lord, as you always do. You will attend to their prayers. You will give them eyes. And you will lead them into your kingdom. We trust that by faith as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.